I'm Dennis Tuberg, and this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio Program. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, I caught up this past week with Mr. David Skarika, the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. In the second and third segments of today's program, I'll share that conversation with you. We talked about where he thinks inflation is going, the value of stocks and other asset classes. You won't want to miss this conversation and get his take on where we're headed from an investment perspective. You know, my report that I have published for the month of April asks the question, are we rocketing toward reset? Stock valuations, as we'll talk about, are at all-time highs. We're seeing what can only be described as extreme craziness in the real estate market. And you have to ask, are we rocketing toward reset? And what are you doing to protect yourself? And the report will actually give you my assessment of where things are and give you some strategies to consider to protect yourself. If you'd like to get a copy of this report at no cost, it's available for this month only. Go to requestyourreportnow.com, requestyourreportnow.com. And not only will you get the report, you'll get some other free resources that we will ship to you. Just give us your name. Let us know where we should mail those resources and we'll be very glad to do so. Again, the website, requestyourreportnow.com. You know, we ignore what many of our founding fathers said, certainly to our detriment, in my view. Now, Thomas Jefferson, whom I have quoted often here on the radio program, said, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and corporations that will grow up around them will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent their fathers conquered. Now, essentially, Mr. Jefferson said, don't let private bankers control the issue of your currency because you'll have inflation, then you'll have deflation, and the bankers will essentially destroy the country. That's my paraphrase. Now look around. Tell me that that is not exactly what we are presently seeing. Now for those of you that are new listeners or perhaps don't delve into monetary issues to a great extent, the Federal Reserve is a private bank. Back in 1913, Congress and then-President Woodrow Wilson thought it would be a good idea to give private bankers control over the issue of our currency. And like many things that happen in Washington that the politicians don't want a lot of attention drawn to, this law was signed into law at the Christmas break in 1913. In fact, if you want a little historic trivia... 1913 was a bad year, in my view. It's when the income tax became reality, and the Fed did as well. Now, on past radio programs, I've talked about what the real inflation rate is. Now, those of you that have gone grocery shopping, those of you that have been to the doctor, those of you that have bought lumber, you know that this inflation rate of less than 2% 
is certainly not reality. See, the official inflation rate is measured by the Consumer Price Index, and that calculation is heavily manipulated to present a headline number to the public that appears innocuous. In calculating the Consumer Price Index, there's adjustments made for hedonics and weighting and substitution. I could talk a whole segment on that, but let's just say there is a manipulation that goes on. Now, there are a lot of privately administered inflation indexes that, in my view, do a much better job of relating to us, the consuming public, what the real inflation rate really is. I've interviewed John Williams of ShadowStats.com. Mr. Williams is a brilliant economist who tracks economic data using methodologies that the government used to use. According to Mr. Williams, the real inflation rate, if we calculate inflation the way we did in the 1970s, runs about 10% per year. That feels more normal, doesn't it? And Ed Batowski of the Chapwood Index would estimate the real inflation rate to be somewhere between 8% and 10% annually, depending on what part of the country you might live. Mr. Batowski used what I think we would all agree is a very common-sense approach to determining what the inflation rate is. He got on Facebook and recruited volunteers in the 50 largest metropolitan areas in the country, and every six months he has them go out and price consumer items. So that 8 to 12% number that Mr. Batowski's Chapwood Index comes up with takes a look at inflation based on what it costs for movie tickets, takeout pizzas, and haircuts, and things that all of us buy every day. So arguably, going back to what Mr. Jefferson said, we are seeing inflation. Remember, Mr. Jefferson said that if we allow private bankers to to control the issue of our currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, we're going to have problems, to paraphrase. Now, how much more inflation we see is extremely difficult to quantify, and it's going to be based on what policy decisions the Federal Reserve makes. Now, at the same time this money creation is going on, debt levels in the private sector and the public sector are at nosebleed levels. Now, this is one of the reasons the the April report is titled, Are We Rocketing Toward Reset? And if you're just joining me, I'd love to send you a copy of the report for free. You can go to requestyourreportnow.com, and I'd be glad to send it to you. Now, when debt levels are unsustainable, as I believe they are presently, at some point the debt will have to be dealt with. That's when deflation kicks in and asset prices collapse. And here's the ironic part. The same easy money policies that help to stave off deflation to this point are the very reason debt levels get to unsustainable levels. It goes to the core of why money is created to start with. It's created to stave off deflation, which are caused by excessive debt levels. 
Now, certainly when you look at asset levels presently, particularly stock and real estate, you find that these asset classes are more overvalued now than at any time in the future. Now, Warren Buffett's favorite stock market valuation metric, something that is now known as the Buffett indicator, is basically market capitalization over gross domestic product. It's a fraction. And when you take the total value of all stocks, which is really how you define market capitalization, and you divide it by economic output, which is how you would define gross domestic product, you find that stock levels have never been this high. Stocks have never been this expensive. And as I'll talk about in the next segment with my guest, David Skarika, there are many other stock valuation metrics that would lead you to the same conclusion. Stocks are simply overvalued. Real estate prices also at record high levels. And as I said at the outset of this segment, the real estate market is nothing short of crazy. The Case-Shiller Index, which is the most commonly used index when valuing real estate, shows that real estate prices, like stock prices, are more overvalued than at any time in history. And in the last segment of today's program, I am going to share with you what a federal agency has warned mortgage firms about. Just last week, they're, they're predicting a wave of foreclosures this fall. I'll talk about that in the last segment of today's program. Now, if you're just joining me again, this month's free report is titled, Are We Rocketing Toward Reset? It takes a look at asset levels, asset prices, and shows how they're set up for a reset and gives you some strategies that you might consider using as well. To get your copy of the report, go to requestyourreportnow.com, requestyourreportnow.com. We'd be glad to send you a copy. I will be back after these words with Mr. David Skarika. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and you are listening to RLA Radio. I'm joined again on today's program by Mr. David Skarika. David is the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. You can learn more at his website, addictedtoprofits.net. The website, again, is addictedtoprofits.net. So, uh, David, welcome back to the program. Um, Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be here again. So, David, let's just jump right in. Uh, We have had... uh, here in the United States, uh, a couple years with uh, j- just record money creation. Um, I, it, it appears that we're starting to see some inflation. Uh, what's your take on that? Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I think they want inflation. You know, the Fed, like, first of all, I don't, I'm one of these people, like, I think those inflation numbers are pretty Orwellian and, you know, uh, pretty much BS. Like, you know, um, um, there's actually a cost of living index they they have just before we get into this, yeah, to talk about having inflation. Um, that shows what what the cost of living is like in cities. And if you go look at this index, it's like it's like most cities, the cost of living is going up 
you know, and this includes everything, housing, you know, from expenses, food, et cetera, is going up 10 to 11% a year. So, you know, even if that's maybe a little over the top, um, you know, I think we're definitely more in the five to 10% range than we are the two to 3% range. So I think that's, you know, that that's an issue, but like, and their inflation numbers, the fed has basically said they're willing to go well above the 2% target, the 3%. So they, they kind of want inflation uh, and partly because all the debt that individuals, corporations, the governments have all taken on and kind of these, these bailouts of, uh, the economy during COVID, I think the only way to kind of get out of this is really to inflate it away, you know, so um, they they essentially want inflation at this point. And, you know, we're seeing it like, you know, it looks like we're in, might be starting another major bull market here in commodities because, um, you know, during the 2010s, we really didn't, you know, we saw the markets go up and asset prices go up. We didn't really see um, commodities go up. They peaked mostly in 2011. And, you know, after a strong 10-year bull market, and now we're seeing, you know, oil and gas is back up over 60. Um, you know, agricultural commodities are rallying in price. Um, like, like lumber has been rallying. Uh, a lot of rare earths because of the push towards electric vehicles are rallying. Uh, even looks like today, the day we're talking gold is getting right to its resistance level of 1750. And if that goes up, it looks like gold might resume its rally that, you know, that, that began last year. And we've been kind of in this seven, eight month consolidation and, you know, on um, silver's uh, back north of 25. So maybe, you know, those are finally starting to move too. So I think, yeah, we're, we're seeing this kind of push uh, for inflation. I think ultimately it'll probably lead to some kind of stagflationary trade. And of course, one thing that we don't know is that right now we're kind of on the cusp in terms of when higher um, rates become problematic. As now, this pushback in the 10 year to 170, that's not again, um, totally, you know, hurtful. You know, the government can still, even with these high debt levels, um, support that. But I think once you get into 2.25 to 250 range in the 10 year, the debt is so high, they're going to run into some fiscal problems, you know, in terms of interest expense. And of course, that pushes up rates for everything like corporate bonds, um, junk bonds, et cetera. So I think that's when the debt levels could be um, um, problematic. And by the way, that's when we could see massive inflation because I think once the rates get to a certain level on the long end, the Fed will do what's called yield control and they'll start buying the long end to keep, you know, because one thing about these, um, uh, you know, to keep the long end down, right? which is really, really inflationary. Because one thing about the long end going higher is that if you go look at, for example, the three-month T-bill, it actually, in March, went negative for a few days, uh, the, the yield. So the short end rates aren't really being pushed up, but it's just the long end that is. And one thing about the government debt, a lot of the government debt is two, three, five-year maturities. So really that pushback on the long end hasn't affected it as much as you think. I think where the problem is going to become is that one thing always surprised me last year when they issued a lot of debt for the first stimulus, they did it in a lot of two-year, you know, treasuries. Well, I mean, those are going to roll over in 2022. And with, you know, the, the even more spending that um, Biden is doing via stimulus and Green New Deal and infrastructure projects, you know, you're going to see even more debt issued over the next year. So then you're going to have to roll over those trillions in 2022. So um, I would think at some point they're going to want to roll over this debt into longer maturities because they're going to have so many every year they're going to have so many one two three year maturities rolling over again that could put pressure on um a rate to some point what's scary about the economy uh, as a whole 
like I said, at consumer, corporate, and government levels, is that we can't handle these. Like even you know, in this last cycle, the top in rates was like three and a half percent or so on the ten-year bond. Um, we can't handle that now. Like you know, we I'd say over two is when we're going to start running into to, to problems. So, um, and, and of course, you know, this is at a time when debt. It's completely out of control. I think we're in a debt bubble too. Um, Cause now like, you know, when I started in the markets, the thing that got me interested in one reason I became kind of a gold hard metal um, 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 hard asset guy is because, you know, um, uh, in the early nineties, people were getting worried about the debts, kind of what one of the things Ross Perot ran on and, um, um, you know, talked about, you know, the debt maybe getting out of control. And now, now no one cares about that, even though the debt is seven or eight times higher than it was in the early 90s. And, um, you know, so now it's just like, you know, another two trillion here, another two trillion there. And, you know, when the U.S. economy is about 20 trillion in size and the national debt's going to get above 30 trillion, that's 150 percent of GDP. We're talking the banana republic, um, you know, fiscal basket case levels, you know. Yeah, and you know, David, when you when you look at debt levels, when you look at you know deficits over the past couple of years, and you look at this blatant disregard for fiscal responsibility, uh, you know, among all this, we have these these theories emerging, like modern monetary theory, where hey, it doesn't matter how much money the government really spends because they can just create it, and if they create too much and there's too much inflation, they can just raise taxes and suck the money back out of the system. Is it, what's your take? I mean, it's kind of my view that, you know, these theories arise because there's no other way to explain it away. Yeah, well, I think that, um, you know, it's, it's just like, I think one reason these theories have arised, maybe it's an offshoot of the fact that debt level is already so high, right? Like, for example, if you wanted to become more socialistic post-World War II or in the 50s and 60s when the economy was really booming, and, and I know the debt level was high after World War II, but we all know that was a one-time expense to pay for the war, and, you know, gradually came down, like, I think... In the mid 70s, that's when it hits, reached the post-war bottom, and it was like you know, like 33, 34% of GDP. Um, you know, you you could actually say, oh, we want to become more socialistic, and actually, a lot of Western European countries and Canada took this route back in the 70s, um, and they did it mostly by actually raising taxes, you know, or having higher taxes at lower income levels. They basically paid for through taxation. They're like, oh, you want universal health care? We're going to pay for it through taxation. Well, now the debt level is so high, I think an offshoot of that becomes, well, we, you know, taxation isn't going to pay for it because, you know, we have some ridiculous four, five, six trillion dollar deficit, you know. So way, way, way you can kind of explain it away is, oh, why don't we just print the money? And, and you know, because they did print so much money after the financial crisis, even the last year, and the currency has not fallen apart, they can kind of say, oh, see, it won't cause hyperinflation. And it is true because of the dynamics of the U.S. economy. It's still going to be the reserve currency for a little while longer. You probably won't get Venezuela-style inflation. And by the way, there's a, there's a very unique one-offs in Venezuela that has caused that inflation, uh, like partly because the, the economy was so dependent just on oil, right? Which the United States does not have that issue, right? So it's got a much more diversified economy. So you're not going to get that. But you know, I think at some point it does, you know, reality has to take hold and you're going to get this massive inflation. Remember, one thing that we don't talk about now, we just talk about stimulus and and this, and maybe there's one reason they want modern monetary theory too, is that, remember, the baby boomers are all about to retire. 
So that means more Social Security, more Medicaid expenses, Medicare, et cetera, et cetera, you know, more, more outlays. And that's on top of like, you know, all these short term things are doing because of COVID. And the thing about these stimulus checks, you know, the, or the, you know, are actually what's bigger than the stimulus checks, I think, is the inflated unemployment checks. Remember, people are getting, you know, uh, inflated state unemployment uh, more than they usually would and for longer than they usually would. It's kind of like income tax in 1913. When a government program like that gets instituted, um, usually it just temp- they say it's temporary, but then it becomes long t- longer term. So I think that's what's going to happen with a lot. You know, you talk about MMT and universal basic income. That's essentially what these inflated on more again than even the stimulus checks. The inflated unemployment benefits are really a form of uh, UBI. Right. And if that if that, you know, that becomes permanent, then you're just going to have to essentially print money for that. Because, for example, if you give everyone a one thousand dollar or like, you know, adult age people, a one thousand dollar a month stimulus check. I think that costs about $4 trillion a year. Uh, Ray Dalio did a study showing that. And $4 trillion a year is essentially what the government budget was pre-COVID. You know, before COVID, the government was spending about $4 trillion and collecting about $3 trillion in taxes. And um, so you're essentially doubling the government budget, you know, um, like, like, you know in, in, in normal times. So where's that money going to come from? Because you can do some additional taxes, but really, if you're going to double the government budget, the budget from four trillion to eight trillion, you're probably just going to have to print a lot of that money. And I do think at some point it does matter. You can't have you can't have you know a thousand percent of um, GDP debt. You know that's just not going to work. So at some point, you know the bond vigilantes come back, rates go higher, and actually forces some kind of austerity, you know, in, 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 um, in the country, but probably you have some kind of inflation before that occurs. And, and remember, too, like there's also other dynamics. A lot of people will say, well, look at Japan. They have all this debt. They printed all this money in the last 30 years, and they've had problems with deflation. But an issue with Japan is two things that's a lot different in the United States. Number one, their debt is almost all domestically owned, so they don't have to worry about foreigners dumping their debt. And then number two, Japan kind of subsidized their, their budget deficits by running huge trade and current account surpluses. The United States does not do that. So that's, a, that's another factor as well. That's one reason, because uh, Japan just makes a lot of stuff, even with China coming on and replacing them for a lot of exports or uh, imports uh, to you know, exports to the States, imports from there. Um, you know, Japan still makes a lot of cars and electronics and uh, other things as well. So, um, you know, I just think that, you know, the, the Venezuela, I think we're somewhere in between Venezuela and Japan. We're not going to get a deflationary bust and we're not going to get that super, super duper hyperinflation. But we could definitely see a form of stagflation with the real inflation rate being higher than probably the, those inflation rates of the 70s. And part of it, too, would be not just, again, to pay for stimulus and green new deals and, you know, infrastructure. Part of it will be because uh, you, you'll have um, a bigger structural deficit because the baby boomers are going to retire and all the money that's going to spend. You know, we know that a lot of those pension plans and whatnot are unfunded liabilities. Well, my guest today is Mr. David Skarika. He is the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. You can learn more at addictedtoprofits.net. I'll continue my conversation with Dave when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us.
I'm Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with returning guest, Mr. David Skarika. If you're just joining us, uh, David is the publisher of the Addicted to Profits newsletter. You can learn more at his website, addictedtoprofits.net. And David, you know, you use the term stagflation a couple times in the last segment, and there may be some listeners out there in our audience that maybe are not familiar with what that looks like and how they might be affected. Can you dig down on that a little bit? Yeah, like the the basic um, the normal economic theory before the 1970s was inflation actually would happen during booms. What would happen was there'd just be a lot of demands for, say, goods and services, and that would cause their prices to go up because let's say, yeah, the, the economy's booming, everyone's got jobs, wages are going up, then people, you know, might, might, everyone wants to buy a new car, everyone wants to buy a nice new house, and they would push the prices of those things higher because of demand, right? So they, they really thought uh, inflation was a demand um, uh, problem. But what happened in the 70s was you had supply shocks, you know, with the OPEC crisis in both 73, 74, and, in, in, you know, in 79, 80. And then you, so, so that means like less oil was on the market. And then also you had all this monetary printing of money to pay for, you know, the new, um, sorry, so the new society by, you know, um, uh, um, uh, uh, by uh, Lyndon Johnson and then for the Vietnam Wars, et cetera. You know, the deficits were increased for a while there. So then you had this kind of like what's called stagflation where like because of monetary measures and supply stocks, you had inflation going higher at a time when the economy was doing poorly, like in a recession, unemployment going higher, which showed that inflation actually, um, you know, Milton Freeman said that inflation is and always has been a monetary phenomenon, meaning, you know, they're printing too much money for whatever reason, and that money sloshes around um, the economy. So that, so stagflation would be like after we, I think we see this initial uh, bump in the economy because things are opening up. There is, you know, a lot of uh, pent up demand, you know, because people haven't been able to go anywhere, do anything. The people with money have savings. So I think after that kind of initial little mini boom, um, you know, and then the government's going to kind of like, you know, um, um, uh, you know, basically max out its credit card. That's one problem with these stimulus is too. They're doing it during this little recovery. We're having it. And then if we uh, drop back into recession, well, what are they going to do? Right. So I think that once you get through this little mini boom, um, you will see, um, you know, I, maybe another, you know, I don't know if it will be a W or I know at least a slowdown in the economy again. And then again, when it's a market goes down, if prices start to go down, if whatever maybe, they're going to have to print more money to try to prop everything up again. So then you could see the, you know, prices go right back up with the economy not recover. And that would be stagflation that, you know, inflation is going higher, but the economy is still weak. And I think we're kind of seeing a form of it now because, you know, that we all know that unemployment rate of 6% is phony. Um, the participation rate is at like multi, multi-decade decade lows. The real unemployment rate is probably in the 10 to 15% range. So we're kind of seeing a stagflation now where, you know, uh, prices of homes have gone up a lot because uh, there's a, a ge- geographic shift going on. People want to get out of cities and they want to get into suburbs 
or or um you know, or just get out of states and move to certain states you know move from California or New York or Michigan to Florida or Arizona or something like that right so um we're seeing like um so we're seeing this kind of shortage of, of goods in some uh, areas and prices go higher um but at a time when the economy really isn't that great so that's really what stagflation is in a nutshell it's prices going higher but the economy is still weak or in recession so, David, let me shift gears a minute because you mentioned that in the last segment, I think your comment was the U.S. dollar will be uh, the reserve currency for a while longer. Uh, but there was some reports out this past week that the U.S. dollar as a share of foreign reserves is actually declining. Part of that is due to the fact the dollar relative to the yen and other currencies you know, doesn't buy what it did you know, even three months ago. But part of it is that, that you know, there's foreign governments dumping U.S. dollar-denominated holdings. So well, how long do you see the U.S. dollar remaining a reserve currency, and, and what reasonable alternative might there be in your view? Um, I don't think they're dumping so much. Most of the stats are showing that they're actually just not buying, right? They're just like, you know, like, you know, like, if you look at Japan and, and China's foreign holdings, like really they're not going down a great deal. But with all the money being created all over the place, if you don't buy anything and the money supply is up 20 percent, well, then your U.S. dollars of the total, say, global money supply go down 20 percent. Right. So it's really I, th- I think because of the measures that are being taken with these the excessive debts and, and the U.S. is being, by the way, way more aggressive on a per capita front than most countries, uh, you know, even, you know, we tend to think Europe is more socialistic, but if you go look at a lot of the European countries in terms of bailouts, you know, like, like stimuluses, et cetera, you know, virtually no one's going to do an infrastructure thing the way the U S is, or it's going to be much smaller as a percentage of, as the GDP. And yeah, so, so I think that's part of the thing. I, I don't know. I don't, I can't see the one just taking over you know, it's still, kind of um, a linked currency. It's not liquid. You know, a lot of, most of us don't believe the numbers out of China. So I could see like a basket of currencies with the U.S. dollar even being part of that, where maybe you've got the won, the euro, the U.S. dollar, even a couple of the big emerging markets, um, you know, countries which are growing quicker, like, you know, the rupee and, and, you know, Brazilian real, things like that, you know, maybe mixed in with some gold and precious metals. I could see that sort of thing kind of taking over more like a basket than than just a one reserve currency. Because what you have to understand, too, is, is globally, I don't know if people want the one to be the reserve currency, because if you go look at the reserve currency for the last four or five hundred years, you know, it's gone from really Western Europe to the U.S. Like, you know, we had, you know, because for a while, Portugal, Holland, France, Spain, UK, they were all the superpowers of the world and essentially had reserve currencies for a time. And then it moved to the American dollar after World War II. So I don't know if people really want like an Asian superpower, especially that one is not, you know, a democratic nation and could potentially use that reserve currency status to spend money to build up a military that could be, you know, not so friendly. So um, I I think that um, uh, it's really going to be a mixed basket of these currencies. I know a lot of people think crypto will replace it. I think what's actually the move in crypto is going to be more to these government-backed cryptos um, that you know are going to be used for payment systems and the whatnot, rather than these little private exchange. Actually, the private ones might get regulated and cracked down on. So um, uh, I think that yeah, more likely it's going to be a mixture of that, and and maybe we'll see like a new 
you know, uh, agreement, like a Bretton Woods type thing where gold is getting kind of frozen, you know, um, you know, now gold is frozen at a certain price, but it'd be a much higher price here with all the money in circulation around the world. But I, I could definitely see a mixed basket of currencies. And maybe if you, cause U.S. is being so rec- reckless fiscally right now and really taking advantage uh, of, of its reserve currency status. And that happens to a lot of these countries, but like, so if you go look at the UK, the UK never went crazy spending on domestic programs or, you know, they, they more had like the empire and, you know, World War One and World War Two is that essentially bankrupted them. So I think that now when they, you know, if uh, you've got a bunch of very, you know, uh, woke political correct programs being paid for by, you know, cheap money that can be issued on a reserve currency status. I think that a lot of foreign investors won't go for that. And I think when they get together, they might say, well, let's do something to prevent this. Let's prevent this from, you know, um, a reserve currency being dependent on one country if they become fiscally kind of reckless. And and maybe a basket of currencies mixed, mixed in with precious metals will be a way to, you know, sort of um, – uh, I, I do that. And I don't know, some people wouldn't like that because they might think that's a one world currency, but I'm thinking more of it's, it's just like a, a basket where, you know, like a, a government might have 20% of their money in the US dollar, 20% in the euro, 20% in um, uh, the won, 20% in gold, etc. Well, David, we've got about one and a half minutes left in this segment. Um, assuming something like that happens, um, what do you think that does to gold prices or gold and silver prices? And uh, that aside, what, what's your forecast for precious metals moving ahead? I really think what we need in gold and silver is what I talked about earlier in the show is the, uh, the yield control. I think right now, again, with this rebounded economy and then these booms in other asset markets, you know, stock market's done great. Collectibles are booming. You know, cryptos are booming. That kind of is taken away from the quote unquote fear trade where people move into gold when they're worried about things uh, going bad. And like I said, we are going to see this mini blip or recovery in the economy or boom in the economy, you know, for the next whatever, three to six months. Uh, that sort of thing. So I'm I'm longer term, I'm very bullish on gold because of all the printed money. But I think what needs to happen is I think before we go into some kind of really kind of aggressive inflation or hyperinflation style, um, you know, or stagflation, I talk about really, I mean, stagflation with the economy again, going down and prices going up rather than this little recovery. I think we'll need a bust in the stock market. And we're most, we're more like most overvalued we've ever been in the market by almost every historical measure, right? So I wouldn't be surprised if we see a 1987 or 29 type shock at some point. I just, you can never time those things as impossible because of the massive overvaluation. And I think the, the response to that will be even greater money protein, probably even buying ETFs to try to prop up the market, et cetera, right? So, um, I, so you know, I really think uh, that is what's needed for gold to really significantly move higher. And I don't know if you did like the Dow to gold ratio, which usually meets at one to one in the 30s. They met at like basically like like 35, 40, one to one, because I think the Dow went to 48 and, the, and gold went to 35. And then 1980, they met at around 800. Um, I don't know. Like, like I, I would think that after initial bust, the stock market will rally because they'll be printing so much money, inflation, everything will go higher. So I don't know. They can meet at 20,000, 25,000, but that, that would be like my ultimate thing. But as a warning, when that happens, you know, if you go look at a gold chart of 7980, it will probably be a last parabolic move. Gold will probably slowly move higher, you know, to whatever, five, six, seven thousand, 7,000, something like that over a few years. 
and then do that final kind of blow off uh, at that point as well. So, but yeah, I would definitely think, I know that sounds crazy, but um, if you go look at all the printed money, the fact that we'll be more printed money after the next bust. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm more interested in the Dow to gold ratio than actually predicting a gold price. I do believe in that, that one-to-one, essentially, at a, at a top for gold and bottom for the Dow. So um, it's just a question is, if it's the bust is a little more deflationary, it would probably be five or 10,000, which would still be you know, a great move for gold. Plus, the cost of all the miners and production would be going lower, so their, their, their margins would be great. And if it's more inflationary, which I would lean towards, you know, who knows? It could be 20, 25,000, 30,000. It could be a million, you know, if they print enough money. <laughs> but, um, um, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's kind of uh, what I'm looking at. Basically, significantly higher. And I do believe that in 2016, we hit a low for gold in this cycle. And then we kind of based for a few years. And really, 2019, uh, 2020, we kind of saw the first move up. So, you know, only, I would say, uh, you know, kind of where we were saying like, I don't know, 2002 in the last bull market, which lasted basically from 99 to 2011. So we're probably only in like, you know, um, I'm going to use football analogy because I'm more a football guy than a baseball guy. Well, probably somewhere in the mid to late of the you know, first quarter. Yeah, we're pretty early on here. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. David Skarika. His website is addictedtoprofits.net. I'd encourage you to check it out. And David, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks for having me. I will be back after these words. This is RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen, your host. Glad you decided to listen in today. And thanks again to Mr. David Skarika for joining me on today's program. You know, I opened the show today by talking about a Thomas Jefferson quote, essentially a warning. And Mr. Jefferson warned us that we should never allow private bankers to control the issue of our currency because, first by inflation, then by deflation, we'll have economic problems. And as I said, that seems to be exactly what we are seeing. And while the headline inflation rate is holding at less than 2%, we all know that the real inflation rate is higher than that. And I gave you a couple examples of some private inflation indexes that would estimate that real inflation is running between 8 and 12%. So inflation occurs when we have excess money creation. But when does deflation occur? Deflation occurs when money disappears from the financial system. Well, how does that happen? Well, when there's too much debt in the system and there's too much debt to be paid, because debt is money, when debts go unpaid, we have deflation and we have a significant collapse often in the price of assets. And I talked about the fact uh, during the first segment and with David Skarika today that when you look at stock prices by almost any metric, stock prices are more overvalued than at any time in history. Real estate prices have followed suit. Now, 
I believe that we're going to see the real estate market, and this is simply my perspective. I think we're going to see the real estate market turn negative by the end of this year unless some form of artificial support is used to intervene in this market or maybe if mortgage forbearance programs are extended further, we can kick the can down the road a bit more. Last week, however, a federal agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, warned mortgage firms to take all necessary steps to avoid a wave of foreclosures this fall. Here's a bit from an article that was published on Zero Hedge. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau warned mortgage firms Thursday to, quote, take all necessary steps now to prevent a wave of avoidable foreclosures this fall. As of March 30, 2.54 million homeowners remain in forbearance. That's about 4.8% of all mortgages. Look around your neighborhood. Check out all the houses as you drive home from work or from the office. One in 20 homeowners are in a forbearance program. Now, the director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau said this, quote, there is a tidal wave of distressed homeowners who will need help from their mortgage servicers in the coming months. There is no time to waste and no excuse for inaction. No one should be surprised by what is coming. That doesn't exactly sound like a vote of confidence in the real estate market. Now, what is a forbearance program? Well, forbearance is when your mortgage servicer or your lender allows you to pause or reduce your mortgage payments for a limited time while you build back your finances. Here's the key point, though. These forbearance programs don't forgive any payments. You're obligated to pay back payments as well as current payments. Now, how many of these distressed homeowners, when faced with this reality, are just going to walk away from the house? Some may be able to refinance. Some may have their forbearance program extended. But it's likely that like happened more than a more than 10 years ago, about a dozen years ago, I should say, many of these homeowners will just walk away. Well, what will that do? How will the real estate market be affected? Well, it's got to turn the real estate market on its head. So at some point in the near future, we're going to have to see assets repriced. My guest on today's program agrees and said the same thing. Now, when it comes to stocks and managing the money in your IRA or 401k, I would proceed with caution. I'd have a plan in place to avoid drawdown. And if you'd like more information or a different perspective, just request my free April report titled, Are We Rocketing Toward Reset? You can get the report by visiting requestyourreportnow.com. Requestyourreportnow.com is the website. And maybe if you're thinking about selling real estate, doing so soon is something you should consider. And the opposite side of the same coin, 
might have you considering taking a bit of a pause before you buy and wait a bit to see how this plays out this fall. There's always the possibility that you'll find your dream home for a much lower price. Of course, everything I'm talking about today hinges upon how much money creation the Fed actually engages in and how much inflation we might see before the inevitable deflation kicks in, as Mr. Jefferson told us it would. If you don't yet have the RLA app, you can go to the App Store on your smartphone, search under your RLA, that's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A, spelled as one word. You can get the app for free. The app will get you access to all of our free resources, including the podcast version of the radio program, our weekly Portfolio Watch newsletter. You also get access to our weekly Headline Roundup webinar, where we take a look at the news from the perspective of you and your finances. We're getting terrific feedback on that. So again, the app is available at the App Store. Search under your RLA, all spelled as one word, and uh, you can download that app for free. That's all the time I have for this week. I will be back again next week. Hope you have a great week.